Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good morning from the nation's capital. Welcome to Just the News AM. I'm your host, Nicholas Balsey, filling in for Carrie Sheffield. We have a great lineup of guests covering a wide range of topics in the news. First up, we're going to Oklahoma Republican Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen. Congressman, good morning and thanks for joining us here. Morning, sir. Thanks for having me on. So how's everything going on Capitol Hill with all the enhanced security? It's uh, it's interesting. Uh, if you've ever been overseas and, and been to embassy or, or a base over there, like say walking into the embassy in Kabul, it's it's more like going there than it is the United States Capitol. It's it's actually a shame uh, that you know we have seven foot fences. I see that you're showing the fences around, but on top of that, what you don't see now is they've added razor wire on top of it, and they had the perimeter, that three perimeter set up. Uh, they have AMRAP vehicles parked at them. They got National Guards at the checkpoints. There's only two ways in, uh, one on the Senate and one on the House. You can't drive down Independence. You can't drive down Pennsylvania. So the public can't even drive past the Capitol now. It's actually pretty sad to see. Uh, it breaks my heart. Do you see the enhanced security going away anytime soon or the, the complex being open to the public? No, the uh, notice we got last week was that the this the fences were indefinite. So what indefinite means? What's the time frame on that? Is uh, it's yet to be determined. Uh, but it'd be very difficult for a guest to even come to my office at this point. Used to our halls were full of of constituents, uh, of business people, uh, people of interest coming to our hearings, uh, coming into our offices, getting to to view the the, the greatest capital in the world, our nation's capital. Uh, and uh, right now there's no visitors. You, you, it's it's just almost like a ghost town up here. It, um, you know, I remember I, for, I came up here in 2010 was my first time to ever be in, in Washington, D.C. And I was with the honor flight and I was with my grandfather and he fought in World War II. And we actually drove past the Capitol and how exciting it was just to drive past it, just for him and I to see it together, how exciting that was. And there's so many people that aren't going to get to get to experience that, much less be able to go inside. Yeah, well, I wanted to uh, shift gears over to energy because you've been tweeting about the Keystone Pipeline project and President Biden's decision to cancel it uh, with an executive order uh, unilaterally. And you, you hear environmental activists actually calling on him to cancel the Dakota Access Pipeline as well. Uh, so what's your reaction to that? And is there something that you've done in response to it or that you're planning to do after this action was taken? Well, we put out uh, H.R. 575, which is a cross-border infrastructure act, which would bring security uh, and surety to to people wanting to invest in the infrastructure with Canada or with uh, with Mexico. The issue that you have right now is what Biden did was unprecedented. It, he 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 canceled a presidential permit uh, that the that the president before him approved, and the president before that, Obama had had issued the study and, and moved forward with the permitting process. So you had two, uh, basically two presidencies that had looked at the Keystone Pipeline, 
Uh, they took a deep dive in it. Uh, one started it, one one approved it, and then when the third one came in, he canceled it for no reason. Uh, there was no uh, review of the permitting process. Uh, there was uh, there was no oversight into it. It was purely political. In my opinion, a lawsuit can be filed in this case uh, just for the uh, uh, for the commerce clause when there's billions of dollars of private money and public money that has been invested in Canada and inside the United States and for a permit to do it for political purposes, we don't do that inside the United States. That's what happens in Venezuela. That's what happens in China. That's what happens in Russia. That's what, that's what happens in third world countries, not inside the United States. The reason why people do business inside the United States is because of the assurity. When they invest their money and if they manage it right, uh, they, they are guaranteed a return. Uh, when there's a need for it. In this case, it was politically motivated and, and, and there's a lot of people that's lost their investment here uh, for no reason, no reason whatsoever, other than just pure bowing down to the environment, to the viral community. Well, the Biden administration is saying the decision was related to climate change. What do you think about that? I mean, the environmental impact versus the economic benefits. How do you weigh that when you look at the situation? So uh, let's talk about the pipeline they were going to put in. The pipeline they were going to put in was going to be the most environmental friendly uh, pipeline they had. They were going to be zero emissions by 2030. Uh, they were going wind energy and solar energy to power the pump stations to push it. Uh, and when you start looking at at the, the the crude itself, the crude itself is still going to be transported into the United States. It's still got to get down to Houston uh, because that's where the refineries are. So now you're going to be transporting by truck and train. Uh, so explain to me how that's more environmentally friendly. When you saw the safety measures that this company was investing in their pipeline, it was enviro friendly. That deal is, is their anti-fossil fuel. And their idea is, the enviros, is they want to eliminate as much as false, as fossil fuels as possible, drive up the cost, which they did this underneath the Obama administration. That's why we saw $4 uh, a, a gallon gas in Oklahoma, which is unheard of. In other parts, they were having 6 $7 a gallon gas. They want to drive it up so high that people will abandon them and force us to go to wind and solar. But it there isn't enough wind and solar out there to replace fossil fuels, and they know that. And so it's, it's extremely hypocritical for what they're trying to do for nothing more than just a political plan. I mean, here you have John Kerry that is that is leading the charge, and he's jetting all over the United States in his private jet. I don't see him pedaling a bike. I don't see him driving Tesla across the United States. No, he's flying in his private jet. So he's telling us not to do something, but he's going to do it himself. If that's not a double standard, what is? Do you think the U.S. can maintain its standing as a net exporter of, of energy uh, right now uh, under the Biden administration? Not underneath these terms. No way we can't. Uh, because we can't compete with other countries. The other countries have oil and gas reserves, too. Uh, we were able to compete with OPEC. Uh, because of the uh, uh, because of the regulations that uh, truthfully that the Trump administration uh, got rid of because it was hurting the industry it didn't it, it didn't damage uh, our environmental input imp, uh, footprint in fact industry themselves have done a great job uh, cutting down their their waste and do and protecting our environment uh, government that's that's not a role that we have to play in that's a role that we can oversee but that's not a role we have to play in but when we start running up the cost of energy uh, it puts it it puts us at a disadvantage and that's what we have we're at a disadvantage now of other countries and we're allowing saudi arabia once again and opec to take control of the world oil uh market and that's that's a um 
for a national security perspective, that puts us in a bad place. Well, Congressman, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We hope to get you back again soon. There's a lot of issues to discuss. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is Bruce Collins, Corporate Vice President and General Counsel at C-SPAN. Thanks for taking some time to join us here, Bruce. Appreciate it. Good morning. You're welcome. Good morning to you. So first, I wanted to start with cameras in Congress for C-SPAN. C-SPAN cameras in the Senate and the House. I think a lot of people don't realize that the cameras they see on C-SPAN, the actual feed, is not from a C-SPAN camera. So I wanted to ask you if you foresee C-SPAN getting their cameras in the House chamber and in the Senate anytime soon. The answer is no. Uh, the history is that in 1979, when Brian Lamb first had the idea of covering Congress, he wanted to do it journalistically. So he went to Tip O'Neill and said, this is the plan. The cable industry is going to create a network and we'll put cameras in the chamber. So we'll cover it from beginning to end and with no commentary. And, and that was the, the main theme. Uh, Tip O'Neill said no. Um, so the result is all of those cameras that you see when you're watching <clears throat> C-SPAN in the House or the Senate, because the Senate did the same thing, they belong to the Congress. They're controlled by the Congress. So and they have very specific rules about what they'll cover. And basically all they'll cover is who is speaking so that you can't see reaction shots. You can't see wide shots during debate. Uh, if something's going on in the chamber that you can hear but not see, you can't see it. And it's not journalistic. And we think it's a significant limitation on the value of having um, transparency in the Congress. Yeah, I remember during the CARES Act debate, uh, there were some objections to the voice vote because not every member of Congress was present in the House to vote for that bill. It was the largest stimulus bill in history. And Congressman Massey stood up and objected and got to speak. But there were other voices you could hear of members objecting as well. But the public uh, and journalists weren't able to see on the feed who was actually standing up in the background, in, in the audience, and, and agreeing with Massey. Do you see that as an, and as an example of the public not being able to see the full view of uh, uh, an important piece of legislation and the debate around a piece of legislation like that? Well, that's the difference between journalism and government, I don't know, propaganda or government television. State TV is what we have on the House in the Senate. So, yes. In fact, over the years, we've noticed many times where there'll be a disturbance in the gallery, for example, and everybody will be looking up. But the state TV or the con congressionally controlled cameras won't show you what's going on. And so what do you see as the main benefit? Do you think not having C-SPAN cameras this long has actually 
impacted the public's perception of the legislative process and could have actually changed the public perception on certain bills or legislation if they could see the real debate unfolding and how it happened? Well, I would like to think so, but no, because um, what people watch C-SPAN for is to watch the debate and they get it. You and I are talking about idle, isolated incidences, really, that probably wouldn't change the overall impression uh, of what goes on on the floor. But as journalists, if news happens, we want to cover it. Uh, and it happens every now and then. Not often, but every now and then. Are you planning to make some new outreach efforts with the new Congress starting uh, to get C-SPAN's cameras uh, in the House and the Senate? Well, here's a little bit of history. Uh, I told you when Brian Lamb went to Tip O'Neill, Tip O'Neill said, no, we're going to control the cameras. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so when the Congress changed hands from Republic, Democratic control to, Democratic, uh, to Republican control in 1994, we thought, well, this is a great opportunity because Republicans were into transparency and so forth after 40 years of Democratic rule. So we went to Newt Gingrich and we said, now let's put the C-SPAN cameras in. Don't worry about it. You don't have to have government employees do it. We'll do it just the way you've always suggested you want it. And guess what the answer was? No. So there's another change in control. Nancy Pelosi becomes speaker. We say, okay, we'll go and try again with new leadership. And we asked Nancy Pelosi, this is the time for C-SPAN cameras. And the answer was no. So it happened again. There was a control change. And we, so we've stopped asking. We're not going to keep asking again because there's too much institutional preference for a state television coverage of, of the legislative proceedings. Do you think that's a good look for uh, the United States uh, to have what you call state-run TV in Congress? Well, no, but the fact is, the reality is that most people don't care. Uh, I don't think that if you had C-SPAN cameras uh, in the House or the Senate, uh, it would change people's perception uh, that much. You might get more in cutaways, reaction shots, and that sort of thing, a greater sense of what's actually going on the floor. But that's about it. Some people wouldn't notice. Journalists, of course, would notice it. Now, what about the Supreme Court? Has C-SPAN made any progress there on getting their cameras in the court? Well, we started formally in 1985. We created a program series called America in the Courts. And we thought, well, the executive is on television, the legislature is on television. Uh, let's try the Supreme Court. And we had an industry group, a bunch of news media organizations making appeals. And of course, here we are, 40 years later, 35 years later, with no progress. The great uh, change, unexpectedly, was uh, due to COVID. Uh, the court forced, was forced to go on uh, online to do its oral arguments so it could conduct its business. And last May, it announced that it would allow a live feed to be distributed. So we do have live audio of oral arguments, but that's as far as we've gotten. Well, now you've heard opponents, right? I mean, say that it would change the nature of the court if they had cameras there. Uh, you even have Justice Alito saying the cameras could prompt theatrics from attorneys and justices. 
Do you see it that way? No, because we have many years of experience in state courts, including the state's highest courts. I think now 50, all 50 of state courts have some form of camera coverage, and a lot of them have full bore coverage of appellate proceedings. Some even cover trials, um, um, not things like child custody and divorce, things like that, but trials of public interest. And there has never been an instance where a judge has concluded that the attorneys were playing to the cameras or that anybody has determined that a judge has played to the cameras. There have been formal studies of this, of which C-SPAN and other news organizations were a part. We were very aggressive in cooperating with the federal court system under the guidance of uh, then Chief Justice Rehnquist to conduct a study of this very thing. We even got the federal courts to do an experiment, the lower courts, of televising uh, appeals court proceedings in a few trials. The report from the Justice Center was there was no, they determined that there was no deleterious or harmful effect on the what they call the administrators of justice by virtue of the cameras. So I don't see um, that if the Supreme Court were to televise just its oral arguments, that it would have any great effect. And one of the great, <laughs> excuse me, one of the reasons Bruce, is because we're at, Bruce, we're actually at the commercial break coming up. But thank you so much, Bruce. We'll be back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Congressman Andy Biggs, the co-chair of the Border Security Caucus, is here with us now. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Good to be with you. So let's jump right into it. Uh, There are physical barriers on about 450 miles of the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border. You recently were there, seeing the situation up close. Do you think Biden's decision to halt the additional physical barriers at the border has helped or hurt the national security of the United States? I think it's it's done serious harm, and we will start seeing that the extent of that harm uh, in the next weeks, uh, next few weeks and days to come. Because, look, I just being down there with agents, everybody we talk to, whether it's farmers, agents, uh, ranchers, whatever. They all said that 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 barrier had been instrumental in slowing the the traffic across uh, their their land and illegal uh, entry into the U.S. Um, And since we don't bet everybody who's coming to this country illegally, uh, I think it's going to be a real security problem. Now, there is a huge barrier surrounding the entire U.S. Capitol after the riot that took place on January 6th. Uh, Some members are saying it's probably not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, It's about seven feet. And there haven't been any incidents since the Capitol riot. Do you see any connection between that debate and having that physical barrier at the border, more barriers, adding barriers at the border, and then the Capitol having that large fence around? Is there a a connection there in your mind? 
Well, I mean, the same people who tell me that fences don't work on the border want to have this uh, fence and, and turn the capital into a military compound. So uh, we don't we don't know of any existing uh, emergent uh, threat to the capital, but we do know of an existing emergent threat to the, the our our nation through the border um, uh, people crossing the border illegally that are coming across. So I look at it and I say. There's two things here. They built a fence because they, they know fences actually do work. So we ought to continue our fence on the border. And the second thing is they came in with overwhelming uh, military personnel. So they, they had an overwhelming amount of personnel to respond as a secondary uh, uh, response if anybody tried to breach the fence. We don't have that on the border. And we need to make sure that we have enough agents on the border working down there um, and with a substantial fence to, to uh, uh, basically intercede as well. Those types of things with the technology that, we're put, that we were putting in down the border uh, w will really help us control the border. And if you don't control your border, you really don't have national security. It's very easy for anybody to get across our border today. Do you think the Republicans will try during this stimulus debate try to get some funding put in there for additional barriers and maybe make that a sticking point uh, in these negotiations on uh, related to the stimulus or immigration? Um, we will we will certainly try to put forward that idea. But basically, the Democrats have said to us, you know, you can either come along with us or we're going to do this without you because we don't need you. We have enough votes in both houses and we have the presidency. They don't really care. Um, in fact, you just need to take a look at uh, uh, that they're taking money away from the border fence, um, and they're also reducing funding in other areas that would also provide uh, help uh, along the border. Well, staying on immigration, I wanted to see if you thought Biden was going to try to offer a path to citizenship next after the stimulus debate. Do you think that's coming? And what do you see as the possible economic impact of doing some sort of comprehensive immigration reform with a path to citizenship for the millions of undocumented immigrants in the U.S.? Well, so uh, President Biden has said he's going to do something. And um, many of the people on the other side of the aisle have said they want it in one big deal. And they don't want an eight-year path to citizenship. They want a five-year path to citizenship. And they want to do am a full amnesty, uh, not a partial amnesty. They want to parole people who've actually left the country and bring them back into the country. Um, and they want to stop deportations. They want to expand amnesty and refugee programs and reduce the vetting. That's part of what they want to do. Um, what, what the economic impact would be, Nick, is that uh, in a time where we, we still have uh, states that are locked down to certain significant, uh, in certain significant ways, and we have people out of work, people underemployed, uh, coming out of a recession. So when you up, uh, actually bring in people, um, you you actually dilute the uh, labor pool and make it hard for people to get fair wages, you make it hard for them to get what they're worth, you make it hard for them to get full employment, and it'll be very, very difficult. And that's that's part of that's just one of many of the problems that come in when you. Um, when you acknowledge that we we actually bring in about over two million legal immigrants to this country every year, and then you're going to basically allow another uh, one to two million illegal entries under the Biden plan. 
I also wanted to ask you about the judge delaying the deportations for 100 days. Do you think that's going to get extended uh, going forward? Do you think they'll actually make it longer, the Biden administration, and, and possibly a, a future ruling, make that even longer than 100 days? Yeah, so, so I mean, that, that ruling was great and it was important, but the Biden administration, um, I think it wants to extend the uh, deportation moratorium for an even longer period, uh, up to six months. And uh, they also want to halt the Remain in Mexico program. That's part of what one of the executive orders from yesterday. They also want to uh, eliminate, they're talking about eliminating Title 42, which has turned away uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, which was designed to protect the safety of the Border Patrol agents from COVID. And um, they want to do away with all of those things, which are, those are all incentives and draws and magnets for people to try to enter illegally into the country. I also wanted to ask you about the reconciliation process that was put forth and was approved in the House and the Senate uh, last night. Uh, what do you think is going to happen there? Do you see the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that Biden's proposed passing with only Democratic votes? Or do you think the Republicans might be able to do something to kind of halt that process uh, before it, it goes even further? Well, um, as, as you know, they have the votes in the House and the Senate. And Chuck Schumer said that he's going to just basically, if, we, if he has to, just pass that straight up without any... Um, Republican participation, quite frankly. And I think that's that's their approach. They don't want the Republicans to go in the House. We're not going to be able to offer amendments. We're not going to be able to actually engage in meaningful debate. And uh, that's what happens uh, in a majoritarian self-governing body that that where the, uh, the majority party says, we just don't really care what the minority party says. And that is the truth. They really don't care what we say, Nick. And that's that's the sad truth. And we can go out there and we can make the arguments. We can try to offer our amendments, but they will not allow us to to actually have that participation. But we're going to keep keep uh, going forward and trying to offer these types of things uh, to try to make this more palatable and more reasonable. It's up to them. And I don't think that they'll let us participate. We have about 30 seconds left. I looked back and I didn't see any examples of reconciliation being used uh, on a stimulus. Is that correct? That's that's my belief. That's what I've been told as well. This is a unique uh, deal and, and it's unfortunate because this should be going through a full debate uh, uh, separately and apart. Thank you so much, Congressman. I appreciate it. We'll be back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, welcome back. So today, February 3rd, is for Chaplain's Day. A lot of people may not know that. It's a special day. And we have Chaplain Gordon Grossclose with us here to break it all down for us. Good morning, sir. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Nick. Good to be with you this morning. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. So I think to start, it would be beneficial if you could just tell our audience, our viewers, a little bit about your background 
and how you got involved with the Armed Services Ministry and how it relates to the day we're celebrating today. Sure. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I've had the privilege to serve just over three decades with the United States Army, serving in assignments uh, stateside and uh, overseas, working uh, primarily uh, in the medical side, but also with the infantry, military intelligence signal uh, opportunity to serve. Today, we have over two million uh, service members in uniform and along that 5,000 chaplains. So I had a chance to be part of that incredible group of chaplains serving, loving, praying for and caring for Americans' finest soldiers. Today, this is a really important day for us as chaplains. It's the celebration of a, an incredible moment. 78 years ago, in the middle of World War II, a uh, convoy left from the United States to Greenland to resupply some air bases there. In that convoy was a Dorchester. It was a converted troop uh, carrier on board with 900 personnel and crew members. Rough voyage, uh, middle of the winter, a lot of ice, a lot of storm almost uh, out of danger, uh, close to uh, the air cover from Greenland and safety from the U-boats. But one o'clock in the middle of the night, freezing uh, morning, uh, Dorchester was struck with three uh, torpedoes. Uh, in those first few minutes, the explosion and the flooding lower decks, uh, over a third of the men would lose their lives. But also on board the Dorchester were those four chaplains, you see the picture in the background. Two of them were Protestant clergy, one was a Jewish rabbi, one was a Roman Catholic priest. And the survivors tell the story with a bit of amazement as the chaplains were on board, uh, giving a sense of calm in the midst of the chaos. As you can imagine, people trying to get to the lifeboats, they begin handing out uh, the life vests. And soon uh, the life vests were gone and realizing there's still men in line for life vests, the chaplains took off their own life vests, their gloves, and handed it out to those that remained. The Dorchester would sink in 25 minutes from the, the first torpedo hitting that. And survivors tell listening of the chaplain standing together on the deck of the Dorchester in the final moments, yelling out words of encouragement and prayers. And that selfless sacrifice is what we celebrate today as chaplains. They were awarded the Purple Heart and the Distinguished Service Cross. And that's a great motivation for a chaplain to realize that it's all about taking care of America's finest. Yeah, I was going to ask you, too, what do you think the public uh, should look at when they think of Four Chaplains Day? What's the takeaway? What do you think it, it teaches uh, people that uh, could that could we have a, you know, applied today, the lesson from the day? I, I, I think America produced four incredible chaplains and America is still producing incredible chaplains. They're making a difference for this nation. And I think in the midst of the struggles we have as a nation, realize that that's part of the fibers we as Americans realizing that we can do great things for our neighbors to make the sacrifice, to make our world, our nation, a better place to be. And could you talk a little bit about the importance of chaplains in the military? Sure. Armed Services Ministry has uh, been providing scripture resources for over 200 years. We figure close to 60 million Bibles and scripture resources to chaplains to equip them to make a difference in the lives of the soldiers they take care of. It can be difficult. Uh, working in, in the military. I know myself, my family and I did over 13 moves. I did uh, additional moves. Uh, it's hard for family members uh, to make the change. Uh, jobs, spouses have careers or are, are always disrupted. I know my kids found it difficult, at least one of them found it difficult to shift between the schools. Uh, and a chaplain is in that unique position to be there to help them during their times of transition, to be word of hope and word of encouragement. And what do you plan to do in the future in terms of uh, outreach to possibly 
uh, lawmakers, maybe to do some events in Washington uh, for the actual day, uh, Chaplain's Day, in the future, uh, when the pandemic's over. Right. So, so what we're doing right now is to support chaplains during these hard times is, is trying to move many of our resources online to digital. We provide uh, no-cost resources to service members, veterans, and their families. And we're figuring out ways to support chaplains to make a difference during these hard times. It's difficult. And so we, as a part of Armed Services Ministry, really want to make a difference uh, for, for families going through hard times to realize that God has a word to them of encouragement and hope during these times. That's great. That's great. And is there one story as we wrap up that you would like to share uh, with the public related to the Four Chaplains Day that maybe uh, they may not have heard before and maybe even an experience you had related to the day? I, I would say what, what has importance to me is my son-in-law is in the Navy and he's been deployed on an aircraft carrier, just received news on Sunday. They're coming, coming home after 10 months. And so it, it's the, the concern of their family, uh, my daughter, his son, to realize that their loved one uh, is in harm's way and realize that we as a nation can be praying for our chaplains, praying for our service members to realize on this day, it's about service, it's about sacrifice. And I know for Dan, it's been a tough 10 months, but he did that for the sake of his family and for the sake of his nation. And we can make a difference today. Uh, and I would just encourage us as Americans realize that we probably won't be needing to give a life preserver uh, to our neighbor, but we can make a difference to hand out uh, a hug, hope, a kind word to make a difference. And I would encourage those uh, to check out our website at armservicesministry.org to find out all the resources that we're providing to military and service members at no cost. And uh, we're there to make a difference. And we thank America for, for supporting us in that effort. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, both of my grandfathers served. Uh, one of my grandfathers served in World War II as a medic, and the other was in the uh, Korean War uh, in military police. So it's always great to hear stories related to the military. Thank you so much. We'll be back. Good. Thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's gonna be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. All right, welcome back. We have with us now Bishop Aubrey Shines. He's hosting a new show, America Shines, on the Real America's Voice Network. He's going to take his audience through cultural and political topics of the day. We're going to see the uh, teaser right now for the show. We're looking at leaders that are no longer speaking out on issue. The Democratic Party's objective is to its parent view. Good to be with you. So looking forward to everything uh, that is going to happen in just about a week and a half from now. And I believe the audience is going to really understand the real history 
how it relates culturally, as relates to the fundamental elements of our society. And I think for those reasons alone, it's going to resonate. We already see, obviously, a real, real move uh, in this nation for individuals to understand his or her history. Unfortunately, what we're looking at is we're looking at various institutions, unfortunately, that are trying to kind of wash over the foundation of this nation. One doesn't have to have a specific faith, but one must acknowledge that it were it was faith people that created, founded, and made sure that even the atrocities in this nation were actually overcome. And we can all find it with what's called a Judeo-Christian ethos. Again, you can be an atheist in this nation, as great as this nation is. What you cannot, under any circumstance, deny is that this is the only nation on this planet that allows that type of pluralism but at the same time, cannot deny the fact that because of these principles merging together, that we've seen the success that we have. We're going to address topics of that magnitude. Now, compared to other shows that are out right now on cable news, uh, what do you think your show will do differently? What's a void that you think your show is going to fill? Well, we're going to totally eliminate this whole political correctness stuff. Uh, that's out of the window because it doesn't work. You cannot silence people with a belief and then assume at some point there's not going to be what we call a real spirit of anarchism. So our show is going to we're going to deal with issues, topics that address everyday Americans, as well as our friends that are across this globe. We're going to address those issues simply because if we don't address them, what we're doing, we're creating a vacuum. And we are allowing other voices to dictate to us as Americans how we should think, how we should feel. And so we're going to kind of cross that cultural line. We're going to cross it politically, ideologically. It's going to make sense. We're going to shine a light on those topics. I couldn't help but to inject <laughs> the pun there. But we're going to shine the light upon those topics. And we're going to see it resonate as we have been in these last several years. Now, when it comes to racial equality, race relations in the United States, it's been in the headlines a lot mm -hmm. after the death of George Floyd last year. You've been outspoken about issues related to that. Uh, what do you think has to be done to improve race relations in the United States right so now? So I wrote a book that is called Black Lives Matter, answering questions about race. I address those type of topics. When I hear these voices out saying, oh, we're so racist, racially divisive in this nation. First of all, it's just not true. I find it very, very interesting, and I, I think a lot of other individuals do that uh, understand these type of topics. Consider police brutality. We heard that with George Floyd. Police are just systemically killing all these blacks in America. That's a lie. Eight to nine black men were, quote, murdered by police. By the way, we never took a moment to find out were they resisting arrest? Was there more involved? Yet you had 20 plus uh, whites that were killed by the same enforcement. Why is that an issue when several thousand blacks are killing blacks every single year? No one talks about it. It's almost taboo. You look at Chicago, they have murders every single weekend. Thousands of people 
200% carjacking just in one calendar year. That's not police doing that. That's black on black crime. Why are newsmakers afraid to talk about those issues? I won't be. We'll address it statistically, and people are going to be shocked that the narrative that they've been fed has been a false narrative. We're going to shine the light on it. America's going to shine on this issue here, and we're going to address those topics. Now, we have about a minute left. I wanted to get your take on a bill that was proposed in the last session of Congress, and it's going to be proposed again. It's the commission to set up a reparation study. So there would be a commission, a federal commission, that studies the issue of slavery reparations and if there needs to be some sort of proposal put forth to lawmakers. What's your take on that? Do you think the country needs some sort of commission like that, that these lawmakers, mostly Democrats, want to set up? Well, it's, uh, I, here's the rub. The Democrats want to set it up. How, how about we start here? If we're going to talk honestly, intellectually, about racism and talk about reparations, shouldn't we go to the individuals that created it in the first place? Was it not the Democratic Party that gave the United States of America slavery? Was it not the Democratic Party that forbade black people from being a part of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments? Was it not the Democratic Party that created Jim Crow laws, KKK? And we still see this political uh, lie being lived out, and it's no more than fodder. It's just red meat for a base to kind of gin them up to make sure because elections are coming up in two years. And then we have those problems. We got to face that issue. Well, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Thanks again. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. All right, before we wrap up today's show, I wanted to take a little bit of time to discuss a story that we're following very closely at Just the News involving budget reconciliation. It's a term some in the public may not really understand because there's a lot of uh, details in terms of the rules in Congress and how it works. But the bottom line is the Democrats in the House and Senate last night voted to greenlight that process, which means they will be able to get President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus stimulus plan, which would be about the second largest stimulus package in the history of the United States, they'd be able to get that through Congress without votes from Republicans. Republicans are very concerned about this because they say the last coronavirus stimulus packages were done in a bipartisan way, and they want it done that way again. But the Democrats have chosen a different path. We are keeping an eye on this at Just the News. We'll see how it all shakes out. But looking back, we see that there aren't really any other bills in the past that have been used uh, toward uh, reconciliation through budget reconciliation when it comes to stimulus. It's normally used for issues related to the budget concerning normal appropriations, regular appropriations, omnibus bills, for example, not stimulus bills. So we're keeping an eye on this closely. And I want to tease tomorrow's show. We have D.C. Shadow Senator Paul Strauss joining us to discuss the push for D.C. statehood. And we have some other great guests, too, lined up for you. So 
Make sure you tune in tomorrow, same time. Thank you, and have a great day. Thanks. For